All right, well, good morning, everyone. If you would get your Bibles out with me, please. First John chapter 3 is where we're looking at. We started looking at this verse last week. First John chapter 3, you can follow along on the screen or also in your own Bible. I'm going to read out of the Message Bible here this morning. It says this in verse 18, my dear children, let's not just talk about love, let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. And we're able to stretch our hands out and receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. And as we keep his commands, we live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us, by the spirit he gave us. I said this last week that I I think this is an interesting passage because it describes something that I think most of us are familiar with, and that is there's all these different realities that are contending for our attention and contending for how we then live our lives. There's the reality of what culture says. There's the reality of what our thoughts say, and there's the reality of what our emotions say. There's the reality of what our hormones say. There's the reality of what our friends and family say. There are all these different realities that are vying for our attention every single minute of the day. But this verse also describes for us that there is God's reality, which means we have a choice to make. Because whose reality are we going to live our lives by? Whose reality are we going to live our lives by? Every single day you have a choice. All of these different realities are pressing in on us. And so you have a choice of whose reality then are you going to live your life by. Last week we started a new series around here called We Believe. And what we're doing is that we're going through the Nicene Creed. How many are familiar with the Nicene Creed? Let me see your hands again. We're going through the Nicene Creed. And um, and here on the screen, I have the words to the Nicene Creed. I want to just kind of say this out loud here, if you would, with me. Say this with me. Say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, worldwide, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
And so that's the Nicene Creed. And this, this creed was created as a result of the Roman Emperor Constantine who convened this, this council in Nicaea in 325. And the purpose of this council was, try, was to try to counter this widening rift and all this heresy that was infiltrating the church during the second and third centuries. And so back during that time, all these heretical teachings, and all these humanistic philosophies were really coming in very strongly inside of the church. And I talked about this last week. And one of the reasons why this was so, so prolific was because the average person didn't have the Bible. You recognize that. Back in the second, third centuries, this, this thing was not available to the masses. And so the vast majority of people didn't have this. And so, so when they were being taught these different things and they were hearing all of this stuff, they had no way to be able to check that what they were hearing, what they were taught was actually biblical truth. And so as a result, unknowingly, they were being swayed by all of this heretical teachings and these humanistic philosophies. The Apostle Paul actually warned us about this in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So the Apostle Paul was warning that this was going to take place. This is something we have to watch out for. But that's exactly what was happening in the second and third centuries. People were being swayed by all these heretical teachings and all of these humanistic philosophies. And so it was out of this council of Nicaea in 325 AD that came this Nicene Creed. And what was interesting, if you look at history, this creed actually became effective in being able to turn the tide on all of this humanism that was infiltrating the church. Because even though, again, the people didn't have a Bible to check to see what they were hearing and, and thinking about, whether it was actually biblical truth or not, each Sunday they had the opportunity to come together, to gather together, and to be able to proclaim and declare and to recite these biblical truths, which would then help them ground them in truth to keep them from being swayed by all these different voices. And I said this last week that I think what's interesting to me about all of this is that 1,700 years later, here in 2016, in spite of the fact that the average Christian owns 4.4 Bibles now, the reality is we're experiencing the exact same thing. We're falling into the same trap of deception today. And Jesus warned us about this. He said in Matthew chapter 24, Starting in verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 10 says, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Then verse 23, it says, At that time if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. And so Jesus was saying, as we get closer and closer to the end of times, that there's going to be more and more counterfeits, more and more deceptions that we're going to have to deal with. And in case you've been living in a bubble for the last decade or so, it seems like everyone is talking about the end of the world as we know it. It's everywhere you turn. You hear people talking about this. The History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel are constantly airing shows dealing with the end of the world, having something to do with Nostradamus' prophecies or the Mayan calendar or the Battle of Armageddon, just to name the few. And I saw this poll the other day that showed that 64% of Israelis believe that now has come the time to build the third temple. 
And if you know anything about end time prophecy, according to scripture, the third temple is something that will be built, but only then in the last days. And 64% of Israelis saying, it's time to go ahead and build that temple. If you watch any sort of news, then you know that radical uh, Muslim leaders are saying that the end of the world has, is upon us as well. And so they're doing everything they can to usher the end of the world in, into place. And so that's why you see all of this, this, this rush towards nuclear weapons and all this terrorism that's happening around the world because um, they believe that the only way their Messiah is going to come is that the world has to be in total chaos. And so they're intent on creating total chaos throughout the world so that their Messiah will come because they believe that we're here in those last days. And then you have environmentalists who are saying that doomsday is coming near as well because of global warming. It just seems wherever you turn, you're hearing this. You're hearing about different ideas and different ways that the end of the world is going to come about. Any of you see the movie 2012 when it came out? Any of you? Nobody? Well, I have a trailer for you here. Let's watch this here together. building these ships. So when do we let the people know? Our mission is to assure the continuity of our species. Wasn't it also decided the people have the right to fight for their lives? If you didn't see it, <laughs> maybe that gave you a little excitement there. 
The Wall Street Journal headlined this movie back in 2012. I want you to listen to the article that they wrote about this. It says this, director Roland Emmerich has nearly destroyed the world three times already. This time he means to finish the job. In his next movie, 2012, which comes out in November, the earth will rip apart, fulfilling an ancient prophecy. The director previously leveled civilizations with an alien attack in the 1996 movie, Independence Day, unleashed Godzilla a couple years later, and orchestrated a climate disaster in 2004's The Day After Tomorrow. His new film, he says, reflects a darker worldview. I'm really very pessimistic these days, he says. The story continues. Most of the storytellers say that they are reacting to anxiety over real threats in uncertain times. The terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, two U.S. wars abroad, multiple pandemics, a global financial crisis, and a new attention to environmental perils. The road even weaves in, in footage shot during recent disasters such as Hurricane Katrina into its scenes of destruction. For me, I feel like I live in an apocalyptic world with global warfare, recession, and resource scarcity, says Jesse Alexander, writer and executive producer of NBC's Day One, which is a new series coming to NBC in March that follows a handful of neighbors trying to survive and understand a calamity that's erased the world's infrastructure. And so where it just seems to me, from my perspective, in, in my, my kind of scan of life, that all of this end-time stuff has just been increasing all over the world. Their interest in all of this has become, I think, just incredibly increasing. And people are, come, are more and more worried about cataclysmic events happening and when the possibility of the, of the world is actually going to take place. And as a result, you see all of these books and these movies and all these films that are being produced to try to describe how it's going to take place and when it's going to take place. Now, let me bring you back a bunch of several decades ago and see how many of you remember the book um, that was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Any of you remember that book? I do. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Obviously, Jesus didn't come back in 1988. And then that trailer that we saw from the movie 2012 was based on the end of the world coming because the Mayan calendar ended December 21st, 2012. Obviously, the world didn't end in 2012. We are still here. And so my concern with this, with this increase of all these shows and movies and books that are trying to describe how this is going to take place and when it's going to take place, my concern is that we're all just kind of becoming numb to all of this. And it's beginning to get put into that category of, of these fantasized ideas, some sort of sci-fi sci-fi movie that is kind of out there, that that's how we're, we're, we're putting that into our, our thinking and process. But... Did you know that the Bible actually describes and talks about the end times? The Bible actually talks about the end times, and it describes for us and outlines for us the events that are going to take place. In Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 9, it says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. And then in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the sovereign Lord... 
does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. In other words, your Bible, whether it's sitting, catching dust on your, your, your desk or your night table, or whether it's something that you read every single day, your Bible is full of prophetic foretelling about the future. The Bible is full. God said, I'm going to tell you the things that are to come. And he wrote those things down for us in the Bible. Actually, maybe you don't realize this, but when the Bible was first written, 27% of the Bible was things dealing with the future. 27%. Now, today, over half of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. Over half of them. As a matter of fact, 300 specifically prophecies dealt with Jesus' first coming. And Jesus fulfilled every one of those 300 prophecies talking about his coming and how he would come and what he would do. Every one of those are, are, have already been fulfilled. And so when you think about all the prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled, you would think that would compel us to read our Bibles about the things that are still to come. You know what I'm saying? Of all the ones that have already been fulfilled, that should compel us to read our Bible because God says, I'm going to show you what is to come. He said, I don't want to keep this a mystery from you. I want to show you things that are to come. And so that should compel us to actually read our Bible, to go back and give more attention to the prophecies that God has spoken to us already. But instead, I think what we do is that we fall back into the same trap that Christians have fallen into for the past 2,000 years. What we do is that we embrace the loudest and most popular voices of our day instead of going back to the Bible for ourselves and reading what God has already written. We fall into that same trap. We're just listening to the loudest and most popular voices of today instead of going back to the Bible and reading what God has already said. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 23, he says, At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And so we have to understand, according to Scripture, we are in the season where the Bible talks about as the end times. We have already stepped into it according to what the Bible describes, which means there are already counterfeits and deceptions fully surrounding you. There are everywhere you turn. There's counterfeits and deceptions everywhere. So the question is, who are you listening to? What are you embracing? Because the only insurance against counterfeits and deceptions is to immerse yourself in truth. I said this last week, the power of deception is you don't know you're being deceived. And so the only insurance of keeping you from falling into deception and falling into counterfeit ideas and following these false prophets the Bible describes about, these false Christs and being swayed by all this humanistic philosophies and, and, and all these heretical teachings, the only way that you're going to avoid that is to immerse yourself in truth. The more you surround yourself with truth, the more you're going to be able to discern the counterfeit and discern then deception. And so look again at the line, that second line of the Nicene Creed, because it says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the father. Through him, all things were made. What I want to do here this morning, I want to kind of dissect this here for you to add more truth in your life as we're trying to navigate all these different voices so we can understand biblical truth here. So the first phrase is this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, 
Bible describes what happened after um, Jesus had, had been crucified and after he rose again. And they spent all this time with his disciples, teaching them, again, training, helping them understand everything that he'd been talking about before. Now, all of a sudden, they could understand it just a little bit better. Because now, all of a sudden, what they thought was dead was now resurrected. And so, Jesus is talking to them. And then he sends to heaven and says, go to the upper room and wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And sure enough, the power of God comes upon those disciples, those first followers of Jesus Christ. And incredible, amazing things begins to happen. The Bible describes that there's a roar that happened in Jerusalem. and draw, drew all these thousands of people trying to figure out what's going on. I hear this roar. I hear this sound. What's happening? And the apostle Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times just months earlier, now stands up and begins to describe what's going on. In verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact." Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend it to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you're taking notes, underline the word Lord. The word Lord in the Greek language is the word kurios, kurios, which means supreme in authority, master, supreme in authority and master. And so here in this passage, the apostle people, Peter is describing why Jesus wasn't just some man who had some incredible abilities attached to him, but he's describing that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord and there is none like him. Even David, the one who they esteemed so much in their Jewish faith, that Jesus far surpassed even David. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this declaration, when we say we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're reinforcing the fact of this biblical truth that there is only one Lord. There is only one supreme authority, only one master, and his name is Jesus Christ. Then look at the second phrase. Second phrase is the only son of God. The only son of God. 
probably the verse in the Bible that most people know whether they've been to church or not is John 3.16. Every football game, somebody flashes up the sign, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Underline the phrase, his one and only son. Why this is so important is because people are attaching all of their own ideas to who Jesus was. Because here's the thing, nobody can deny the fact that Jesus existed. He is set in history. He is a historical character in history. You can't deny that fact. He, ha- he was, and so because of that, you can't ignore the fact that he existed. But what people tend to do is they, they believe him as a good man. Jesus was a good man. He was a holy man. He was a good teacher. He was a prophet of some sort. But that's where people tend to stop. They tend to stop that he was just, he was just a good figure out there. They're not willing to declare that Jesus was really the divine son of God taking God, God himself coming in the flesh here on earth in the body of a man. But look at what Jesus himself, how he describes this in John chapter 10, verse 24. It says, the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you because of any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, Jesus himself said, I am the son of God. The apostle Paul said this about Jesus in Philippians 2, starting verse 6. says, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. One of the non-negotiables of Christianity is that we believe that Jesus is fully God. That's one of the non-negotiables that in order for you to be a follower of Christ, to call yourself a Christian, is that we believe that Jesus is fully God, perfect, without sin, coming here to earth. That he wasn't just another teacher, that he wasn't just another leader, he wasn't just another philosopher. That's not what we believe, but we believe that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. I love how C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, addresses this issue. He says this, He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one of the things we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
And so this declaration, the only son of God, what's it, it's, what's, what it's reinforcing inside of us is that this belief that Jesus truly is the son of God. That's who he is. Every time we declare that, we're declaring that he is the son of God. Then the third phrase just kind of adds on to that. Eternally begotten of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the father. The operative words here are begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. And what was being addressed here in, in this, this creed was this issue, this belief that Jesus was created. Just as you and me, that we are created, Jesus was created as well. Because a teaching that was prevalent there in the second and third centuries was coming from a bishop by the name of Arius. And, this, and his teaching was that Jesus was just a man. An amazing man, yes. And God had given Jesus this divine ability that far surpassed anything that man had ever seen before. But Jesus was still a man. That was the teaching that was swept the world during that time. The problem, though, with this teaching is that it was denying the fact that Jesus is God. It was denying Jesus' divinity. Again, Jesus said in John 14 himself, Jesus answered, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and, you, and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and that, we, and, that, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I have to say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. And so when we're making this declaration, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father, it's reinforcing this fact that we believe that Jesus is God. They are one in the same. We're establishing our lives based upon that biblical truth. And then the last phrase here is, through him all things were made. Through him all things were made. In Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul is describing this. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, Jesus was there at creation. He's the one who designed it, he's the one who created it, and he will restore it. In the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came and dwelt among us. Jesus was there at creation because he is, he is God. 
This is who Jesus is. 1,700 years ago, people struggled in understanding who this Jesus was. There's all this heretical teaching that was infiltrating the church and all these humanistic philosophies that was diminishing who Jesus was. And the reality, folks, nothing's changed. People still struggle understanding who Jesus is. But I fully agree with C.S. Lewis's assessment here. Because the reality is there are only three choices for you to make. There are only three options. When you think about who this Jesus is, there's only three doors that you can go through. Door number one, he was a liar. Door number two, he was a lunatic. Or door number three, Jesus is Lord. That's it. There are no more choices when it comes to who Jesus is. That's, that's the only thing. Either it was, he was a liar or he was a lunatic or he actually is who he said he is and he is Lord. The question is, where are you going to choose? Whose reality are you going to live your life by? Are you going to accept him and embrace him and live your life on the truth that Jesus is Lord. We're confronted with that, I think, more than ever before, at least in my lifetime so far. We're being pushed from all sides, all these other realities that are trying to describe Jesus in a different light and a different way. And so, you have a choice. Who are you going to say Jesus is? I want to ask you just to close your eyes here as we finish up here this morning. Because, you know, maybe for you, this whole Jesus thing has just been kind of peripheral to your life. Maybe for you, you've been one of these that have just kind of wrestled with who this Jesus is. Yeah, you recognize that he's a historical figure. You recognize that he did some great things, but you've wrestled with trying to understand who exactly he is. And the crux of the issue is whether or not he is God or not, whether or not he is Lord. But maybe even here this morning, maybe something was, has been stirring inside of you. And maybe your eyes have been opened finally to God's reality and you're seeing Jesus in a new light. And you've realized that you've kind of diminished him, that you've been adding the realities of what culture says and what the media says and your friends and family, what they're saying and and you're beginning to realize that there's been some counterfeit there. There's been some deception that you, has been involved maybe in your own life. But maybe right here this morning, truth has kind of risen up. And it's kind of stirring inside of you. And, and so maybe for the very first time or maybe in a, the first time in a long time, you're beginning to see Jesus in a whole new light. I want to just kind of lead you in praying here. Because the one thing that's so important for everyone of us to understand about God is that God never, ever, ever forces anything on us. It's all about choosing. What am I going to choose? And he makes his plan and he makes who he is very clear. But at the end of the day, we still have to choose whose reality are we going to live our lives by. And so nobody else can do that for you. Your parents couldn't do, before, do that for you. A church can't do that for you, whether you're a member of a church or not a member of a church. None of that matters. It's your own personal declaration and your own personal step of faith. And so I want to just lead you in a prayer here this morning. I want to just ask, 